views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. On this program, we discuss three. Just a second, Max. We're we're gonna have to do a do-over on that one. Uh, I thought you had unmuted yourself, but you weren't. So, take two. New Abolitionist Radio. From the top. Peace and welcome to Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. A program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the October 10th. 2018 live broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, and you were just listening to 13th Amendment by Cash Doll from the Most Perfect Album 
which is available at all major online music distributors. Tonight, we've got a huge change to announce. It affects U.S. slavery abolitionists everywhere. This is important, so stay tuned and we'll explain. We'll be going deep tonight also on the concept of white of a white race in history. When have we ever not been controversial? <laughs> you got to expect it. We're the people who think differently about things by definition, abolitionists. And one more thing, we've got poetry tonight. On and near this day in history, freedom fighter and thorn in a president's side, Fannie Lou Townsend Hammer, was born on October 6, 1917 in Montgomery County, a country, Alabama, Mississippi. I'm sorry, Montgomery County, Mississippi. She said, nobody is free until everybody is free. And here at New Abolitionist Radio, we stand in solidarity. Happy birthday, Queen. On October 10th, 1845, the United States Naval Academy opened in Annapolis, Maryland, with 50 midshipmen, students, and seven professors. 99 years later, Wesley Anthony Brown, April 3rd, 1927 through May 22nd, 2012, was the first black graduate of the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. He served in the United States Navy from May 2nd, 1944 until June 30th, 1969. He was involved in both the Korean and the Vietnam Wars. In direct action news, the Right to Vote campaign needs your support. It's a nationwide campaign being initiated by people currently confined in the United States. This campaign grew out of the grew out of the August 21st national prison strike demands, specifically point number 10, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. Then also remember to vote Amendment A in Colorado to remove the exception clause to slavery from the state's constitution. In honor of his birthday, our abolitionist in profile tonight is William Still, October 7th, 1821 through July 14th, 1902. A black abolitionist in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a conductor on the Underground Railroad, a businessman, a writer, a historian, and a civil rights activist. Our riders of the 21st century Underground Railroad today are Van Dyke Perry and Gregory Counts. Convicted in 1992 on a false rape testimony, these two black men were wrongfully convicted and incarcerated for 26 years as punishment for a crime that never happened. They were released in May of 2018. As always, we have a little time and a lot to cover, so be sure to follow the information we provide on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio so you can see the information in real time as we talk about the issues. Also, remember to support our efforts by joining us as a member at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. We need your help and support to continue. You'll find the links for today's programs on our abolitionist planning page, which is available to BTR community members. If you have a question or comment, you can call in at 704-802-5056, and you can chat with other, us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, Max, I'm ready to go. Um, I don't have any specific complaints about myself or a personal situation, but, yeah, I'm ready to go, man. Uh, we kind of doing things a little bit differently. I don't know. Yeah, we probably have in our um, seventh season now over the uh, years have done this type of format, but uh, we're going to listen to a lecture by Jacqueline Badalara. Uh, 
um, is what you suggested. To me, she is a professor. This is uh, how she's listed. She is an attorney and a professor of sociology at St. Xavier University in Chicago, Illinois. So that's, um, you know, we want to listen to that. Um, the information isn't new to me, um, but, you know, it's always good to find people, um, you know, share the same information who've done research and this is what they found and, and, you know, this is my presentation. So I'm looking forward to listening to that presentation and people's thoughts on it. Um, as well. And then the second hour, if it takes us that long, um, you know, the uh, change, the change that we need to um, make in the abolitionist movement that you alluded to here in the United States. Indeed, Scotty. Hey, you know, this week I saw some interesting things uh, that I wasn't aware of. For instance, I feel like a superhero. <laughs> I've been saying that all day. I feel like a superhero because I was featured in the uh, San Francisco Bayview. I, I didn't know that. Back when we did the speech uh, in Washington, D.C., they put it as one of the featured articles there. I'd never even known until yesterday. So I kind of feel like a superhero, you know. Only the realists get up in the San Francisco Bayview. And then also, you know, we was talking about the uh, Black Agenda Report over the weeks off air, you and me, as well as a, a few other things. And I saw that they covered the strike. I mean, they have a copy of my speech up there, along with the others who were speaking, and uh, almost in its entirety. So they covered the strike. I thought that was a real uh, good thing to find as well. Yeah, that was when? 20 what? 17. 2017. Um, yes. So I, I don't understand, you know, maybe some editorial decisions why as much coverage was given to uh, the 2017 uh, abolitionist uh, convention in, um, I guess you could call it that, in March and rally millions for prisoners' human rights in 2017. Why the lack of coverage on in 2018? Well, there has been some coverage, and we've seen it. Um, and we don't necessarily agree on some of the definitions that, be, that are being presented as abolition. But that's okay. You know what I mean? Well, like, let, let me put it this way. I talked to Tag earlier, uh, who's coming up with a, a podcast or a new format for his podcast. And he said he wants to delve deeper into that, what we talked about behind the scenes. I talked to him today, the motivations, all the stuff. I don't really want to air that tonight, but Tag um, has expressed the interest in getting into that. And I suggested that he interview Max Partis. Um, you know, in his, um, I guess you would call it um, his um, journalistic investigation uh, into that hit piece that Black Agenda Report put out, uh, what, a couple of days ago? So just a heads up, Max. Okay. Uh, you know, you could have handled it too. There's, there's a few people in the world that can really break this down from the beginning to the end, and you're one of them. Scott. Yeah, but I wasn't so, a know. witness on the calls, though. I, I hear you. I hear you. No doubt. I appreciate that. I look forward to it. Hey, you know, what did you think of that track, man? It blew me away. By the way, that is uh, Cash Doll from the Most Perfect album. The album does nothing but have songs about the Constitution. So every amendment is represented in a song, sometimes two or three songs. And it looks really like hot. it just came out in 20 September of this year. Yes, it came out... Uh, Right after thirteen, I wonder, I wonder if Kanye could have heard that, and you know, uh, who who knows? May what are they uh, 
get their inspiration from for the Thirteenth Amendment to analyze it in a, a hip hop track. I really did the track, man. I tweeted it out over uh, Black Talk Radio, um, but I really did the track. But it just came out September eighteenth. Perhaps the prison strike inspired it. I, I I don't I don't know. That would have been the uh, month well, later in August. Um, it, it took a lot of thought to put this together, 9th. so I doubt if it was that soon. They've probably been working on this for three or four years because it has all uh, 27 amendments covered. No, I'm just talking about the track for the 13th. Oh, for the 13th, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was surprised too, man. It, it made me smile. I, I really enjoyed the whole song, and she really had it pretty much covered. and That was hot. So, yeah, look, look it up online, and uh, it's called The Most Perfect Album, and you can uh, download it and support it. Matter of fact, right, I, I guess okay. we should um, also uh, make a mental note to reach out to Cash Dial and um, interview them here on New Abolitionist Radio so we can get some of them questions answered. Right, right. Well, you know, the reason that I brought up this thing today about the creation of races and where it came from and, and how it got started and what it was all about, we've talked about it over the years. But we, you know, I got a hold of this here video of this, what you called it a lecture. It probably is a lecture. But she really broke down when it started, who did it, why it was done, and all the way up to present day. And I thought that not only would it help us, because we're learning out loud here, but also would help our listeners to listen to this and uh, gain whatever understanding that they can from it. I, I certainly agree with that, Max. And we also invite them. It's like 30 minutes long, so we're going to ask them to take notes. Uh, just 30 minutes, but any particular thing she says or point in history she brings up, um, if you want to build on what she said, if you dispute anything that, that she said, if you're disputing the research, give us a call, 704-802-5056, 704-802-5056. The way we were going to do it was listen to this 30-minute lecture, then have the uh, second half hour or the first hour uh, take your phone calls and give our thoughts uh, on it. Um, but I, I'm going to say, man, it really explodes a lot of, um, well, let me put it this way. It really shows a lot of statements or theories to be incorrect, um, especially in the black community where, you know, people call themselves conscious or whatever. Um, but where they speak on integration and, and sleeping with white women and, and all of that and, and and how they try to interpret that as a starting point for something or or you know, it, it's really it's really giving you the roots of it all and what I found most intriguing, which I've stated before. And it was actually a part of the conversation in my interview with Brother Osei. Um, when I interviewed him about an article um, he came out with where you have uh, non-white people questioning if black people should refer to themselves as black or African-American or uh, believe in the transatlantic slave trade and because we have people out there who say that never happened. And so, but, you know, she really gives you a break a breakdown on where, like you said, Max, where it all started, who started it, how did we come up with these race, racial classifications, and why, and specifically, it's not really racial classification. She's talking about the creation of white people, and that's a classification. Where did that, there's a point in history where that was used that's affecting us here in the United States. Where did that start, and why? What was their motivations? And, and and what have you, but again, it's all 
the her whole lecture isn't really about slavery, but you can't she can't help but mention the obvious connections to to slavery. Because it's all about it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, um, hey Scotty, let me read uh, just the title of her book because uh, Sister Sharon Smith owns the title and she, uh, owns this book. She let me use it. Okay, it's birth of a white nation. The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today by Jacqueline Badalora. Okay, so um, you want to go ahead and roll it? Uh, yeah, because, you know, I thought about it for a while, and I'm sure you have too, so we not only want to hear her, but we also have some things we might want to add to it at the end. So there you go. One. Again, white White people did not exist before 1681. Again, white people did not exist on planet Earth until 1681. Number two, any claim that this group called white people, um, any claim that that group is rooted in biology or derived um, from genes or biology or is innate or is from nature is a lie. Third, and final point, as a matter of foundational law, actually let me say it this way, white supremacy has been embedded in the United States of America from its founding as a matter of law. Now, I don't expect you to buy all that, to get all that, to believe all that, at least not now. But my job is to share with you the... Um, legal history that proves each of those three claims that I begin with. So let's go. Let's get started. We have to begin this conversation in colonial North America, specifically in the colonies, the British colonies of Maryland and Virginia. Both were British colonies and both shared a number of particular characteristics. First, their economies were rooted in tobacco farming. If you know much about tobacco farming, it requires tremendous human labor. Lots and lots of workers. So those who owned large plantations, um, big landholders, constantly needed laborers to do the work to grow the tobacco. In addition to sharing an economic base, both colonies had an incredible gender imbalance. Roughly... 10 men for every woman. Now, let's understand a little bit about the folks who constitute the people in these two colonies. Oh, and by the way, let me give you a, um, a year. Uh, we're in the early 1600s, okay? The early part of the 17th century, colonial North America. England had, uh, for some bizarre reason that today demographers cannot explain, there was a population boom in England in the early 17th century. So there were lots and lots of poor British people who were on the public doles, who couldn't find a way to make a living, who couldn't feed themselves. So the king in England was quite happy to have them sign a contract of indenture to then go work um, in the British colonies. And that is what happened. Both indentured and enslaved persons, according to historian Edmund Morgan, were sold and traded like cattle. But of course, not all laborers stand equal in terms of their labor agreement or lack thereof. 
Those who came under a term of indenture worked for a term of years, and presumably this indenture was an agreement that they chose to enter into. The terms of indenture were largely protected by British law, although the terms that took form in colonial North America were quite different than those that existed in um, England. For example, in England, indentured servants could marry because that was viewed as the way to produce the next group of workers. In this country, indentured servants were prohibited from marrying, and if women were unfortunate enough to get pregnant during their term of indenture, they added usually about seven to nine years onto their term of indenture and one year to the father. Slavery, of course, was a status that came with life, work for life. There was neither British law nor international law to prohibit or restrict slavery. What we do know is that at this time period in colonial North America, there were free persons of African descent. Um, we know that landholders um, freed slaves. They did so in wills. They did so by allowing them to purchase their own freedom or the freedom of a family member. The vast majority of workers, laborers, um, in colonial North America at this time were British men, British workers, the vast majority. Um, there were some women, there were some European laborers from Portuguese, Dutch, um, folks from Ireland and from Scotland are also revealed in the um, records, but the vast majority were British men. There were small numbers of persons of African descent, and there were even smaller numbers of members of native tribes. Um, but in this slide, I'm trying to capture the socioeconomic ladder, and really that ladder should be about as long as this room. Um, the landholding elite are, in today's parlance, that's the 1%. And the vast majority of folks um, who were in the colonies um, were laborers, Again, they were British, other Europeans, Africans, and members of native tribes. Here's what I find folks have the most difficult time with. We tend to really struggle with getting a good picture of social life, the social context at this juncture. We're very good at understanding the social relations that exist later, and we'll talk about those in a moment, but pre-Bacon's Rebellion society is something that we generally in this country struggle to grasp. Um, so I'm going to do my best to paint a broad stroke picture um, of this time period. What we know is that British and African laborers worked, ate, and slept together. Furthermore, the evidence from this period, um, which covers the first three quarters of the 17th century, that the anecdotal evidence reveals that they lived under similar conditions and faced the same, the same opportunities and chances to make it once one was free of their term of service, whether free of enslavement or free of indenture. So let's review this. 
British laborers constituted the vast majority of the populations in both colonial Maryland and colonial Virginia. All men, of course, because the law of coverture, let me tell you something about that law of coverture. Um, the law of coverture is derived from British common law, and it um, structures marriage. And this is how um, Barrister Blackstone dis famously described the law of coverture. In marriage, the man and the woman become one, and the one is the man. You didn't have the right to retain your own wages. You couldn't um, create estate planning, wills, or trusts without the approval of a man. So all men who were free of indenture or enslavement faced the same opportunities in these colonies as a matter of law. For example, free men of African descent could own servants or slaves, and they did. They could vote, and they did. They could marry persons of the opposite sex. God, and I love that I have to make that qualification now. Woo. They could marry persons of the opposite sex regardless of national origin, and they did. In fact, marriages between men of African descent and women primarily of British descent were not uncommon at all. In one county, one half of the free men of African descent were married to a European woman. There was a challenge to these marriages, but it did not come from the masses. It came from elites, and that's what we're going to talk about next. All right, this little depiction um, is meant to be a depiction of the um, lawmakers in Maryland, colonial Maryland lawmakers. Um, they passed a law in 1664 punishing, and I quote, British and other freeborn women who marry enslaved Negro men. The punishment for entering into these marriages um, was that the woman herself would be enslaved for the, her husband's life, and any children they have would be enslaved into their 20s. Hmm. Now imagine that you are a plantation owner. That's not a bad deal. I get more property. I like that. And that is exactly what happened. Rather than deter these marriages, which is the express intent of the law of 1664, um, rather than deter them, these marriages were encouraged um, by property owners because that, in fact, that such a marriage increased their property value. This law, this law of 1664, represents if not the first, certainly the precursor to anti-miscegenation law. These are laws that punished or prohibited marriage between, notice that white people didn't exist yet in 1664, um, at least as referenced in that law. But most generally speaking, anti-miscegenation law prohibited and punished marriages between a white person and a specific non-white person or persons. Let me be really clear. I read all the time in history books, in academic texts, um, and I hear, I read, anti-miscegenation law described as prohibiting interracial marriage. That's not correct. For example, a person of, a member of a native tribe could marry a person of Chinese descent. Both 
were understood as racially distinct, but never did anti-miscegenation law prohibit such kinds of marriages. The only marriages that anti-miscegenation law prohibited were those between a white person and always a person of African descent and sometimes various other groups. Okay, so just so we're really clear about anti-miscegenation law and its link um, to whiteness. A couple other things to note about anti-miscegenation law. It's not derived from British law. Anytime um, we look at law and study history and you see a break from British common law, you always want to pay attention because it tells us something about the needs and desires of those who wielded power um, in the colonial context. So anti-miscegenation law was one of these laws. They're, they were passed colony by colony and then state by state. It's a really important area of law um, for a number of reasons, um, but for our purpose this morning is because it's where this human category called white first appears on planet Earth the first time. In addition, anti-miscegenation law is important because it lasted more than 300 years. These anti-miscegenation laws literally shaped the faces of this group of more than 2,000 X number of people that I'm looking at today. The Maryland legislature um, sought to correct for the encouragement of marriages that they described in that previous law of 1664 as, quote, a disgrace, unquote, to the British people, as an indication that the, quote, British or freeborn woman must be forgetful of her status as free, end quote. So they passed the law of 1681, and in this law, it made it illegal for British and other white women from marrying a Negro slave. And furthermore, the law punished any landholder who encouraged the marriages and any religious authority who performed it. This law equals the invention of the human category white. Did these group of laborers, some of whom were from Portugal, some um, from Holland, some from Ireland, Scotland, did, did they have a little genetic transformation that occurred right after the General Assembly in Maryland met, creating a genetic sludge that we can now call white? Virginia passed its first anti-miscegenation law in 1691. In Virginia, the law prohibited both white men and white women from marrying um, African, uh, pardon me, a person of African descent or a member of a native tribe. Um, but lest I leave you thinking that gender equality um, was being created in this law, let me quickly dispel that. Studies um, of antebellum courts reveal that, in fact, anti-miscegenation law um, was that, at least in the language of the law, prohibited these marriages for white men and white women. But here's what we know from antebellum court cases. Um, we know that plenty of white men married and or engaged in intimate sexual relations um, with prohibited women. 
However, very rarely were they brought to court and punished under the anti-miscegenation law. Very rarely. So here, pay attention to this. This law, in its enforcement, is largely focused on, on controlling the relationality and the sexuality of white women and non-white men. Furthermore, think about um, the enforcement practices that come out of this um, particular law. What, what's the result? Who becomes more available for who? We see a, a further step in locating patriarchal power squarely among and within white men. We've talked about the law of 1664 and the amendment to that law in 1681. And we've noted that the key difference between those two is the reference to the group who's um, of concern. The language has shifted from British and other freeborn to British and other white women um, in that particular law. So the question becomes, well, what the heck happened between 1664 and 1681? And the answer is Bacon's Rebellion. This was a, rem a massive revolt in the colony of Virginia that lasted more than a year. Let's talk, let me give some background um, of the seeds of this rebellion, what helped give rise um, to this violent outburst. Those who were enslaved, um, I don't think it's hard to imagine, were by definition of their status disgruntled laborers. And remember that pool of readily available workers from England who were poor? Um, and happily sent off in the guts of ships, well, they dried up. That population surge um, ended, and there was no longer a pool of laborers from um, Britain available to handle the work on the um, plantations in the colonies. The result is they began to impose harsher punishments on indentured servants who were already here so that relatively minor infractions would result in significant extensions to their years of service. Those who completed their term of indenture or who were released from their status as enslaved were frustrated. They were frustrated because the King of England gave almost all of the farmable land to his buddies, um, and even if they could find land to grow tobacco on, prices dropped and taxes went up. So land and other opportunities um, became much more limited. So this guy, Nathaniel Bacon, the guy pointing his arm, um, he didn't have to search very far for disgruntled laborers. Both those who were enslaved or indentured faced worse treatment, and those freed faced less ability to make a future for themselves. Persons of European and African descent fought um, in the first phase of Bacon's rebellion against members of native tribes, and then in the second phase of Bacon's rebellion against the British ruling elite. Nathaniel Bacon ultimately died from wounds that he received in a battle, and England sent troops um, into the colony, and that eventually quashed the rebellion. But not without having made a significant impression upon those who wielded authority 
and were threatened by this rebellion. Remember, this rebellion lasted over a year, and records from lawmakers in Virginia to the legal oversight authority in England revealed that over 30% of the population were in support um, of the rebellion. Here were the lessons from Bacon's rebellion. A united labor force is a threat to the form of capitalism taking hold within the colonies. Virginia lawmakers wrote letters to the oversight authority in um, London explaining that they intended to pursue a divide-and-conquer strategy in order to prevent future rebellion. It's only after Bacon's rebellion that we see the emergence of white people as a group of humanity. Let's think about this for a minute. 1681, some lawmakers invent a new label for a group of people. Imagine, if you will, just for a second, for fun here, that I'm a lawmaker, and I just pass a law claiming that three-quarters of you in this room are crunchies. Okay? So three-quarters of you are crunchies, and the other quarter of you are not. Who gives a damn? Who would care? Some silly lawmaker came up with a label for you. It's really unlikely that it would mean much. But let's say I follow it with this. Those who are crunchies, you can pay no more than $25 a night for that hotel. No more. Those who are crunchies are the first to come into any room at this conference and the first to leave. The first in line at the bathroom, at lunch, at any other line that forms, and the first to get to leave. And that these privileges and advantages that come by virtue of this label that I asserted upon you as a lawmaker continues when you walk out these doors. That it shapes how you are treated and what you get to do for years and years to come. Imagine you're one of the crunchies. Imagine how you might start to feel, wow, I must be special. Imagine you're not a crunchy. Wow, what's wrong with me? This is not fair. Let's return to the divide and conquer strategy. Laborers prior and through Bacon's Rebellion were united. They lived the same darn lives. They faced the same opportunities, rights, and privileges once they were freed from enslavement or free from indenture. That's about to change. A slew of laws were passed in the decades after Bacon's Rebellion and continued to get passed into the first quarter of the next century. The first slew of laws included the prohibition of free blacks from holding public office, the prohibition of blacks and native tribal members from marrying whites, the requirement that whites, upon completion of their terms of service, be paid goods including guns and gunpowder, a prohibition of free blacks possessing a weapon. We're going to come back to that. 
the prohibition of blacks testifying against whites. These laws began to give different meaning to these labels that prior to this moment just referenced where your nation of origin was. Not anymore. I want to return quickly to the law that prohibited free blacks from possessing a weapon. What this law did was essentially strip black, free black men of their ability to hold patriarchal power. Because look, under the law of coverture, here's how things worked. Men were in control, um, controlled women, um, their spouse controlled their children and had legal authority to do so, including severe beatings, um, all financial assets and land. The man had the control. But the exchange was that in exchange for that authority, he protects. That's the trade-off for patriarchal power. Stripped, made impossible um, by virtue of this law. And then let's look at this law that prohibited blacks from testifying against whites. We, we will see that throughout U.S. history. Mexicans prohibited from testifying against whites. Chinese prohibited from testifying against whites. And then it just becomes mongrels, the label, um, to include persons of Af Japanese descent and the like. Um, so that's a, a law that we see throughout U.S. history. When you look at these laws, what's the message to white people? Each one of these laws has a message to this new group of people called white folks, on the one hand, and a message to those who it denies or restricts on the other. Each one of them. This package of laws, first passed after Bacon's Rebellion, did something extraordinary. Let's imagine that that light up there represents the landholding elite, the 1%. And, and this represents the socioeconomic ladder in, in the colony, okay? And so this hand over here represents this new group of laborers called white ones. And this hand over here represents um, laborers of African descent and members of native tribes. Before Bacon's Rebellion and through it, these laborers had the same lives, faced the same opportunities, and that changed. But when you look at these laws that passed that created this change, it divided these, created different meaning for this group versus this group. But it didn't do a whole lot to lift the economic status of white people closer to that of the white elites. Very little movement up. What it did do was it plummeted the bottom created a new bottom to colonial society and shoved persons of African descent and members of native tribes there. So let's look at this group of humanity called white people. We learn from this history that white people were built upon the idea that British had of themselves as white, as Christian, as freeborn, as deserving of rights and privileges from which others can be denied. To this day, white people have not been defined as a matter of law to this day.
This history teaches us that white is the tool by which laborers were divided. Those who shared the same living conditions, the same opportunities, now experience ourselves as more connected with Paris Hilton than with our African-American neighbor, even though our economic status is far more similar to that neighbor than to the lives of the 1%. But not only did this new organization of society create a new bottom to it, it created a link that heretofore had not existed that connected this new group of laborers called white people with the elite. And what was that connection? This shared status called white, embedded with the presumption of its superiority. The other thing to note about the invention of white people and the meaning of white that this history reveals is that white constituted the center of patriarchal power. And we see that most clearly through anti-miscegenation law and specifically through its enforcement. We're going to move from the 17th century into the 18th century. The American Revolution has taken place, and the Congress of the Uni first Congress of the United States of America will meet for the first time. And when they meet, they will establish laws regarding citizenship in this new country. This is the building actually in New York where the first Congress met. Here are the men who represented the first Congress. These laws regarding citizenship include an area of law called naturalization law. Naturalization law provides the process by which one who is not born in a country can become a citizen. The first Congress of the United States determined 1790 that in order to become a naturalized citizen of this new republic called the United States of America, one had to be white. This was valid law in the United States until 1952. You had to be white to be a US citizen. 1952. Now, as is often the case, Laws impact those who are gendered female differently than those who are gendered male. No less true with the naturalization law. For example, white women who were citizens, if they dared to marry a man who was ineligible for citizenship via the naturalization law, in other words, he wasn't white, she loses her citizenship. These laws work to make white women most available to white men, and frankly, all women available to white men. The requirement of whiteness in naturalization law has had a significant impact on various groups of people who've come to the United States of America. In fact, the naturalization law was a significant piece of evidence used in the Plessy versus Ferguson case in 1896 to determine that U.S. citizenship status and therefore the protections of the constitutions were never intended to be applied to persons of African descent. Naturalization law assured that the masses of Chinese laborers and then Japanese laborers and then various other groups of laborers who came to this country would remain 
cheap, dependent labor. Why? Because even though they were significant in number, especially relative to their employer and landholders and railroad companies, if you're not white, you're not a U.S. citizen. If you're not a U.S. citizen, you don't vote. If you can't vote, you can't voice your political needs and desires, thereby reducing these groups of people to dependent, cheap labor. In addition, naturalization law was used to block persons of Chinese and Japanese and Filipinos, and we could go on and on, various groups. Um, not only did it result in them getting paid less for doing the same job, but all kinds of taxes got imposed upon them. So there was a foreign wage tax. Various laws were passed that blocked them from being able to work in the public sector, blocked them from being able to hold a managerial position. And then, of course, alien land laws were passed. These were laws that made it illegal for those ineligible for naturalization, i.e. not white people, made it illegal for them to own property. And so what's, what's the result of these laws for white people, right? Because we're real good about seeing the harm that these laws cause um, for certain groups. But let's get the flip side of that coin. When I make land, when I make a whole group of people ineligible to purchase land, it makes more land available and cheaper for me, for white people. When you're the lowest paid worker and prohibited from moving up as a matter of law, then those positions that get paid more, that are more desirable, are more available to white people. So we see just from this one law, and I could spend another hour with you at least going through these combinations of law, naturalization law, anti-miscegenation law, Okay, we're back, Max. Yeah, I think that's about as much as as we had. That was enough right there. You there, right, Max? Scotty. Yeah, I'm, I'm here, man. Um, we're going to do some brief talking about it because we're only about eight minutes away from our commercial or less, uh, taking a break, commercial break. So, uh, yeah, let's just keep it brief, and then we'll open up the calls after we come back on the other side. But I found an image, and it's in the cover of today's promotion for the program. And in that image, it's from 1828 from an, encyc an encyclopedia. And it shows the various races of men. Of men, They had what they called the American, which was the Native American tribes. Then they had the Arctic, I guess, which were uh, represented through people like the Eskimos. And then they had Australians. Then they had Caucasians, and Caucasians in the image looked like black people. And then separately, as another race altogether in 1828, was Europeans, then Mongolian, and finally African. I mean, it's, it's all witch doctor stuff, man. None of it is real. Okay, did you have any other thoughts? Yes. One of the things that I have to... Uh, there's a lot of notes that I took, Scotty, and I'm not going to get on the notes. I just want to add something that I thought of in addition to this is that whiteness throughout history has always been like a prize that you can hand out to just about anybody because it, when, when white people began in this creation she describes in 1681 it was limited to what she said with British men majority British men right Anglo-Saxon 
Right. The Irish were not white people. <laughs> the Italians were not white people. Scottish. Scottish became, people weren't white people. Right. And then even now today, they're doing the same thing. If you remember just recently when Rupert Murdoch was arguing with people about who is white and who's not and pointed out that Egyptians, because of the movie that they had came out about the Egyptians, the Egyptians were always white. And then people started talking about white Egyptians. So now you got white Egyptians, you got white Puerto Ricans, you got white Hispanics. I mean, it's just crazy. It's like a freaking piece of candy they can hand out to you that gives you white supremacy. You know, one of, one of the things that, well, there's a couple of things that stood out to me, but um, um, first, point of confusion. Sorry about that. Point of confusion. Is she wrong about who could be a U.S. citizen um, and only white people from white countries or European countries, free-born white people, those were the only ones who could become U.S. citizens, but, okay, Chinese immigrants uh, from anywhere else, other countries, like Donald Trump said, from S-hole countries, to put it into modern context, but... The 14th Amendment, which was after the Civil War, when was it? 1860. Um, so, you know, African-Americans and victims of slavery, African-descended victims of slavery at that point, that's all it was, and um, were granted uh, citizenship by the 14th Amendment. And then it also became anyone born within the borders was also a citizen. That's why you hear right-wing groups today and those who target, um, you know, immigration from non-white countries. Um, that's why they call them anchor babies. And they came up with that term, say, oh, they just trying to get across the border, drop a baby, and and now the baby got citizenship, and now that person uh, could have, have citizenship. So, um, but I think she's just talking about immigration. Okay, for example, if you were from Ireland at that point, or if you were from Scotland, if you were from Denmark, if you were from um, um, any of the uh, Sweden, um, any of these where the, your phenotype is this Aryan uh, type of phenotype, you know, long straight hair, uh, uh, pale skin, and and so um, you know, just just man, what really kills me. Just let me get to this point. What really kills me is um, thinking about it. And we, even after these laws have been uh, uh, repealed, since that's going to be a topic later for discussion, we're going to be talking about repealing. But even since those laws have been repealed, because now they can no longer um, discriminate against someone based on national origin, thanks to Dr. King and the other people's Civil Rights Movement, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Okay, so when she say 1958, um, I, I have to, you know, I'm wondering what what uh, case is she referring to because it didn't become federal law that I know of till 1964. Um, but it could have been some some earlier uh, uh, bills that were passed. But even though all of this has been outlawed by law on piece of paper, um, we still subscribe to these labels, and we know. You know what I'm saying? That they were created. She laid out why they were created. And, you know, even though Bacon Rebellion, she gave you the history of how everybody, uh, regardless of skin color, hair type, all these phenotypes and what have you, you're just a human being. 
But now we kind of, again, self-segregate. Even after segregation has been outlawed and, you know, we still self-segregate. And we preach segregation as well. When I say we, I'm talking about different people in, in humanity, you know, um, that are behind these enemy lines that I call USA Inc. So how, how that just gets programmed into you, you know, even from slavery, you know what I'm saying? This has been programmed and, it, and this isn't normal human behavior. So I'll, I'll leave it right there. But she said a lot, man. Yes, and from the things that I was taking notes on, she said, for instance, that white people have never been defined by law, um, you know, but they have been mentioned in law. They haven't been defined by law, but they certainly were mentioned in law, uh, for instance, with the Dred Scott decision, where they said that uh, African people, colored people of African descent have no rights which white men are bound to respect. Right, but and, I get what she's saying, Max. She's saying you still haven't passed a law. You have this rule, this uh, this rule that y'all go by, but it's not a law because when you think about Egyptians now, you had to go to the census department. That's where you would go to. And so they may not be in the Constitution, but it could be a law, immigration law, whatever. That's what, what you're getting into. I heard that Egyptians, I don't know for a fact, but if I've heard people say that if, you're, if your nationality is Egyptian, that you're classified as white. And I think there was a case where an African descendant, Egyptian was his nationality, his citizenship, and they tried to classify him as white, and he fought a case against that. So that was elite. that was in the 1970s. So, so I'm telling you, man, this country is a jumbled mess. Um, it needs to be tore down to the floor and rebuilt. Um, but yeah, it's a lot to get into, man. But well, I don't, I don't want to hold 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 up. Other people may have some thoughts, might provoke some thoughts uh, that I may have. Okay, Scotty. Well, there's a couple of things that I took notes on, and also I got some information outside of what she was talking about that I'd like to present at some point. But let's take our, our first break, and when we come back on the other side, uh, we'll talk more about this. You're listening you to New Abolitionist to Radio, Radio right here Network. on the Black Talk Radio Podcast, Network. We'll be right back after these messages. Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. I just want to mention uh, Bacon's Rebellion. This is what they say about it Bacon's Rebellion demonstrated that poor whites and poor blacks could be united in a cause. This was a great fear of the ruling class that would prevent the poor from uniting to fight, fight them was the question. And this fear hastened the transition to racial slavery. Now, creating a race serves more than one purpose. You, you know, you got this select group that you're putting together and you got a group that you're uh, now demonizing. And we know, and we've said it here before on New Abolitionist Radio, that race was a construct to justify slavery and human trafficking so they could kill the white man, the red man and take his lands, so they can enslave the black man, and so they could exploit 
the yellow man. But there's um, scientific study was put into that as well in order to try to convince the world that there was such a thing as white people. When prior to that, there was no such thing as white people, at least not by law. And you didn't even hear him talking about it other than maybe when they were being described by someone. But uh, Scotty, my computer just crashed that I had my setup on. So I just lost all my information. So in any case, there's this, this new studies have double checked and they've been double checking for a while. All of this uh, pseudo scientific jargon that they did to try to create these races of men. And they're showing that it was just, it was really just quackery. It's so hard to describe it. Max, I think they succeeded again. Um, it, now, let me explain it this way. I've often asked myself, am I contributing to the problem? Because my cousin, one of my cousins, older than me, intellectual, um, you know, he, we had that conversation a few years back, um, how he doesn't put himself into any kind of label or classification. He just goes by, by a human being. And so then I'm like saying, well, am I contributing? You know, by coming up with Black Talk Radio, even though that's an industry term. But still, this is an invention. This is invention. But then I think about it like this. Look, when you strip pe- uh, black people of their nationality, okay, you you started stripping them of their nationality. And now everybody's being called black or white or Negro or Caucasian or, or whatever. And then you're just bringing over uh, African victims of slavery uh, from that transatlantic slave, slave trade. So, uh, go go ahead, Max. <laughs> well, you know, like I said, it seems like this is a tactic. And when you look it, at it, it is, time, Max. I'm, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. But my point yeah. I was getting to was that they were successful. And how were they successful? Through propaganda, through law enforcement. Again, it, the legislator he put that on paper. Ain't no the masses ain't got to pay attention to that. They gonna do what they want to do. They gonna do what what their sovereign rights say they had a right to do. So I'm sure people were arrested and put into slavery. Remember, it was, she was saying some of the plantation owners was exploiting it and saying, "Yeah, uh, um, you know, my Negro slave, go out there and get you one of them, them British women." And, and and you know, he looking at it. Hey, that's some extra labor. On, on my property, you know? So, but how did they sell all of this? Newspapers, propaganda, law enforcement. Law enforcement is very key. The masses may not go along with something, but the masses ain't armed. Again, as she was talking about, black people couldn't own firearms. Um, but, you know, the masses not down with what the what the elite is putting on paper into law, but that law, that paper wouldn't be worth what it's written on if they didn't have law enforcement. And that's where the slave catches in. The police is, is very, very key because they're the attack dogs of it all, you know, for the 1%. Max, and I think we got a call, 609. We can't hear you, Max. There you go. Can you hear me now, Scotty? Yes. Okay. I I just want to put this out there real quick. Uh, As you know, I have been struggling with my computer set up and trying to do this with the earphones and having to go to the phone. Well, my computer just uh, blue-lighted death and crashed out. So if anybody out there is interested in helping Max Parthas get a computer, 
I will certainly take some donations. So everything for the rest of the night for me is going to so be. So how how would they donate? Uh, prismaticdreams at gmail dot com on PayPal, and that's spelled P R Y S M A T I C dreams plural at gmail dot com. Man, this thing is years old, and I got a lot out of it. So I guess it's about time for it to die. Yeah, I reached my limit on uh, this one computer. It's my most reliable. I've had it from for seven years, and it's refurbished, but it had a terabyte hard drive, and I reached my hard drive limit. All I was wondering, all the audio that I saved these podcasts and, and what have you over all these years, man, I was like, man, is it going to run out? It went on for seven years before I had to start deleting stuff. So, so I feel you, Max. Hopefully, um, you can put that on the wish list or something, and somebody get to it. But did you want to get to one of your it's other no points, or did you want to go straight to the call, to the phone, Max? Okay, Max. Max will have to call in from a telephone because uh, if he's having computer problems his connection is via computer so he would go down So, but I think we got uh, uh, Brother Ross check out Brother Ross in btrcommunity.com uh, where he posts a lot of information and articles and, and uh, thoughts and opinions uh, Ross go ahead hey greetings to you uh, Brother Scotty to the callers and listeners and of course to Max as well um, yeah, the, when you just discussed the story of, um, his name is Mustafa Hefni, the um, Egyptian immigrant who sued the U.S. government to be reclassified as black. That was in 1997. He's still suing them. I just wanted to read a, a brief section of the article that came out. This was in 2012, um, as far as him still attempting to sue them. So it says, this is from uh, Time Magazine, Egyptian immigrant wants to be reclassified as black. Mustafa Hefni feels he's been black his whole life. The U.S. government doesn't agree. Anyone who's ever filled out a census document or taken the SATs is familiar with that odd moment when you have to bubble in your racial classification. For many, the choices are confusing, limiting, and problematic. In the end, each person bubbles in what they feel best represents their identity. But when Mustafa Hefni immigrated to the United States from Egypt in 1978, he didn't get a say in that decision. Quote, the government interviewer said, you are now white, unquote, Hefney told the CBS Detroit. Since the 1980s, CBS reports Hefney has been fighting to, to have the U.S. government reclassify him as black, which is how he's always seen himself. Quote, my classification as a white man takes away my black pride, my black heritage, and my strong black identity, unquote, Hefney told the Detroit News. Hefney, now 61, filed a suit in 1997 against the U.S. government to be reclassified, but his case was, was dismissed. Hefney also reached out to President Obama for help, writing him a letter on June 29th to Detroit News reports, as well as the Justice Department and the United Nations. He says here, interestingly, quote, I have been awarded inadvertently the negative effects of being black, such as racial profiling, stereotypes, and disenfranchisement due to my Negroid features. However, the legal demand of my racial classification of white prevents me from receiving the benefits established for black people, unquote, he told CBS. Hefney says he's also lost out on university teaching positions because they were positions designed for a minority, and he did not qualify. I'll stop there. So basically, he, <laughs> he has... A problem on paper that would manifest in his real life and it all ties into that like I call it the matrix it's a made-up reality that the world has been forced into via violence 
white supremacy, global white supremacy. We've been forced into this reality, and that's why I always say for us to function every day without being in the street rioting like 24 hours a day, we have to be infused with a touch of the crazy of the system that we live in. Well, that's cause of they got us divided, man. See, we divide ourselves. Um, The original intent of Bacon's rebellion. So as I was speaking earlier, and I kind of lost my train of thought, but when I was talking about my cousin don't go by these classifications, well, I choose to go by black because um, I don't know my African descendants' um, nationality. Um, They could have been one of them free black persons. They had probably came over here by way of England, by way of Europe for sure, um, as they, she talked about those free black people, or I'm quite sure in that family tree there are some enslaved victims. So that has been stripped from us, our nationalities. But even yeah. when they gave them that legal definition of white people, those people still held on to their nationalities. That's why you have St. Patrick Day, which is an Irish Catholic, you know, religion. They celebrated drinking. Some might go to mass or whatnot. But, but you know, they held on to that. German-American, they still spoke German. I, you know, I was reading that, um, I think it's some of Trump's ancestors, one of his ancestors, or one of them... Um, White, There's a whole cluster of um, terms, I think, where in, it said in, they, in did, they didn't even like speak whole, English. It's whole town that they all run, and it's all full of Trump. Dad, I'm sorry. Um, but saying, like, some of Trump's ancestors that came over here, um, one of his German ancestors uh, didn't even care to even speak English. You know what I'm saying? And and, <laughs> yeah. and what have you. But, again, you know, all of this stuff has legally been outlawed, but they still violate the law. So why is this man in 1997 having to sue? Why are they still using racial classifications? And 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 I use it as a cultural thing because I've been stripped. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like a whole bunch of other yeah. people who classify themselves as black or African-American. You know, the genetics is, is, is clear on that. So so anyway, you know, so so that we can um we had to create our own culture, and we did create our unique exactly. culture. You know, uh, we have took elements from the tribes because all of these victims was blended together from different yep. tribes, and so they created their own cultures and, and what have you. But, again, that classification, um, are we feeding into it? And if they really yeah. fear, like, for example, I did the show on how should the black community view the Antifa movement. Okay, most of the criticism from the black community towards Antifa, who's out here punching uh, people who classify and identify themselves as white racists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis. And and so Antifa is, quote unquote, this label, white people out there punching them in the mouth. Um, You know, some of the criticism from the black community is, well, I don't trust them because they white. You know what I'm saying? Instead of, yeah. hey, man, don't white boys is is having a civil war. Let's do like in the American Civil War and decide yeah. the winner by the side we choose to fight on. So if they if this group over here is for justice and that group over there is for enslavement and racism, then it should be an easy choice for black people. But again, we let these labels that they created for division going all the way back to the 1600s, and we apply that to ourselves. It's got Yes. Right, okay, sorry, Max, we got you back. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm on the phone now again. 
like I said, I got, if you got a computer or something you want to donate, I'm looking forward to it. Hey, Scotty, what I would like to point out, though, is for me, one of the things that I've noticed is the legal identity. You could call yourself a pink unicorn, don't make you a pink unicorn. What you self-identify is, is not necessarily what you are legally identified as. My birth certificate says Negro. And as of 2016, there will never be another Negro because it's been banned from, uh, by Obama from the uh, legal rhetoric that they use. So you can't even be a Negro anymore. That means we're among the last of those who are called Negro. And if you look at the pattern of how they did it, the legal entities in 1625 were Europeans and Africans. The legal entities in 1650 were Negroes, mulattoes, and colonialists. Then you got the, Negro, the uh, legal entities in 1681, which were blacks, colored, Indians, and whites. You see how they're changing the names? And then now, in 1964, we're suddenly African-Americans and Americans. We're the only ones that got to hyphenate. Everybody else is just Americans, apparently. But you see, what they're doing is very much what CCA just did. They changed their name from CCA to Core Civic. And now they have a blank slate, and they don't owe anybody anything because that was a whole different company. I have a question I'd like to throw out there to Max and um, any other callers, and we do have a new caller on the board. But here's the question. Now, in terms of how people, the masses, self-identify, I ain't got a problem with that. ain't got a problem with a Japanese-American naming his uh, steakhouse, the Japanese steakhouse. I ain't got a problem with... Uh, the Chinese Chinese food, whatever they call it, uh, cafe or whatever. I ain't got a problem with people uh, identifying with their uh, nationalities because that's part of culture. And again, we some of us use the term black or African-American because that part of our history has been stripped from us um, because of, of slavery. So should the government, should it be illegal for the government to even is it helpful, is it constructive, or is it unconstructive in helping to maintain the system by the government on legal forms classifying people by race? Should we eliminate those boxes? Um, here's my answer to that, Scotty, and this is my opinion. But the way I see it, there are identified victims and there are identified offenders. And if you take away any identification, then you no longer have anybody who is to be held accountable for anything. Once the Negroes are gone, you don't owe the Negroes anything. Once the blacks are gone, you don't owe the blacks anything. That's the, the uh, way of thinking that they're using with this. It's very much like CCA switching its name to Core Civic, doing it in order to wipe their debts clean. Yeah, like, there was a lot done to the Negro. The Negro is a very well-documented uh classification legal terminology in this nation that has suffered some incredible horrific uh events well well max you can do that you can do that still with the documentation because you still got the documentation to classify people as negroes so going forward if we if the government stopped using racial classifications and they was eliminated that does not absolve them of any crimes because the the crime everybody know we got family names we know where our history is. We we know all of this. There's ways to 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 uh, document your family's enslavement or mistreatment. Cause remember, the United Nations said the United States owe reparations not just for slavery, but for white supremacy, for Jim Crow, for all of that. 
what was practiced against the free and the enslaved uh, black or African uh, descended person. But so, but how do we break out of this? How do we break out of this going going forward? If why did, if if the intent of the one percent was to split us up and divide us? where we're not as just human beings focusing on justice and what's just, but now we're focusing on these racial classifications and then we're at each other instead of focusing on the 1%. I mean, that's how they planned it and we still playing in their playbook. We going, we still behave in the way that they intended. Just my, just my thoughts. But let's take this call, 202, been hanging on patiently. Uh, 202, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. What's on your mind? Hi, Scotty and, and Max. This is Sharon Smith. How are Hi, you? Hi, Sharon. Hey, welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. You're welcome. Uh, I just wanted to put a point in, uh, I just add a little bit more complication to your puzzle. Bacon's Rebellion. Um, what? So do we even know why the disaffected, disenfranchised uh, poor whites and blacks united um, against the aristocracy in 1676. Did we talk about that? No, we didn't talk about the part about how they gathered together to kill Indians. Exactly. And that is part of the story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They wanted to be able to conquer more Indians and take more Indian lands because yep. they were hoping that at the end of their indentures, they would, there would be some land left for them. And the aristocratic British folk had made a treaty, trade treaties with the Indians that they would not give out any more land to um, colonists, even indentured servants. Um, so because they had trade deals with the Indians. And it, it, you know what um, disgusts me? I used to be proud of the Buffalo Soldier history, oh, but I still oh. understand them as victims. Um, these are people who were recently um, uh, uh, emancipated slaves without an education, and one of the few ways that they they could survive and get a paycheck and eat was was being in the army. And but we right. have to acknowledge what they did, you know, because I was stationed that, at Fort Huachuca. You're you're going hundreds of years later. I'm talking 1676, the construct of whiteness was created. Right. And the native story is part of that story. Right, right. And it is. And also, you know, there's a long history of native people and African people mingling together, the black Seminoles, uh, you know, all of that. But what I wanted to point out, though, after the creation of whiteness, uh, even though black people, like you said, did help conquer this land and murder and kill uh, Indians, then it was passed in law that they couldn't even get the free land. So, the, you know, the Buffalo Soldier is the one who won. Freeze for a second. <laughs> black people and Indians were a lion early on, yes. But at, be, what, at, a, at the time of Bacon's Rebellion, we're talking 1676, not 1776. We're talking 100 years earlier, okay? Um, during the, this is the outgrowth of the Jamestown colony we're talking about. We're still in Jamestown. <laughs> Pocahontas' people have been um, enslaved, 
murdered and uh, their lands have already been taken. And now the next frontier is the lands of the people just uh, to the west of that, which is inland, what we now call Virginia and North Carolina, okay? Uh, Virginia and the Carolinas, and that's what the colonists were after at that point. Um, so um, they even passed laws in the colonies that if you ran away and went native, there were terrible, terrible consequences. And that was to keep the white European colonists from running away and going natives because the natives were living large off the land. Now, the alliance between Africans and Indians didn't really begin to happen in, 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 um, in major ways until after Bacon's Rebellion and right. after uh, chattel slavery, racialized slavery. Was right, race-based slavery. Yeah, that, that's what right. I mean to say. But also, the free black colonists that, that she brought up, they weren't allowed to own that land. No. And they no. weren't allowed no. to benefit. It was, you know, Martin no. Luther King even talked about these immigrants came over here and they gave them free land. Well, they had took this right. land from, from the Indians. It and wasn't free land, though. Yeah. Let's correct that. Yeah. That stolen land. Not free land, stolen land. Well, that's what they were told. To them, it was free. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? They didn't even. And so, <laughs> so, but black people were even prohibited from from getting that. So, what right. I'm trying to say is, during Bur Bacon's Rebellion, during the early col colonial period, uh, African descended people played a big role in establishing and running the colony. African people uh, served uh, longer hours in the Continental uh, Army than any other group. This, this is a fact. And that history ha has has been hidden. But after it was ra racialized and free black people, free black colonists were stripped of their rights, right. then, yes. you know, uh, um, I don't even think they were even allowed to serve in the military and again until after the Civil War when... Um, I mean, excuse me, during the, during Civil, the War, Civil War, when Lincoln British, was forced to use were freeing them. Africans in America if they would work with the British. Right, right. If I, right. If I may, go ahead. If I may add something in there, less than 100 years later, that growth of whiteness, this whole construct of white, has escalated to the point that in the only speech that I've ever read where Frederick Douglass directly talked about the 13th Amendment, he said this. I hold that the work of abolitionists is not done. Even if every state in the Union had ratified that amendment, while the black man is confronted in the legislation of the South by the word white, our work as abolitionists, as I conceive it, is not done. That was what mm -hmm. he said. The word white itself in the freaking laws is causing the problem. And they weren't white prior to, what did you say it was, uh, she says 1681, you said 1676. Bacon's Rebellion was 1676. And, and you said that's when the construct of whiteness began. Well, she said. That's when, the, in order to break the alliance between the white colonists, the white indentured servants, and the black uh, indentured servants, they, they, they literally created a special deal to co-opt the white folks, the poor white folks, and cause them so that they would ally with the white aristocracy. 
because they really didn't treat the white and the black indentured servants any better until they tried to break the back of the alliance between the poor folks, the, the, the masses of poor folks and the aristocracy by convincing the white folks to ally with the white aristocracy under the banner of whiteness. With in exchange for certain they literally they literally invented white privilege right and the middle class at that moment you're right the, 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 hey, we being described confusing to me because of the fact that we're using modern words to describe what they were saying then like we we saying white now but at that point they weren't white they, they, there wasn't blacks there was either free negroes or enslaved africans they weren't called blacks at that time you know or maybe uh uh, well, whatever name they used yeah, for the black folks, they made so. a clear distinction. And when they invented whiteness and they made it clear that black folk or African folk or whatever you call those people were not included in the construct of whiteness. In the Virginia they, slave well, codes, it uses the word black. In the Virginia slave code, 16, I can't think of, of the exact year, but you can look it up. Virginia slave code, it uses the word black. And yes, and, the word and, and perpetual slavery and, and racialized yes. slavery didn't exist until after Bacon's Rebellion. And that was part of not only did they elevate the poor white people, but they did it in a way that exempted them from the horrific oppression that black people were going to begin to go through. And they started to pass a series of laws. And the other groups. The Virginia yes. Slave were part of that series of laws. They came out in 1705 in Virginia. And it yes. said prohibited yes. blacks, regardless right. of free status, from owning right. arms. Right. So they were getting ready to punish the black people for Bacon's rebellion and exempt the white people, which is what we call white privilege today, because we get consequences that poor white people don't get. Mm. Hey, we do right. need to take our uh, moving up on our last half hour. Max, I know you want to address another topic. We could forego, or you could just do a quick reading of our uh, abolitionist in profile. You mentioned a birthday um, and get into that. But we do have Otis on the line. So let's take this break and then uh, come back, Max, if you can pick up Otis' call. And then we'll take it where, whatever direction you want to direct it to, Max. Okay, uh, absolutely. When we come back, what we'll do then is this conversation needs to be had, but we don't have enough time here today. So we're going to stop at this point and move on to the next one after Otis's call on the other side of the commercial break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on Black Talk Radio Network with Scotty Reed and Max Parthas. We'll be right back after this. You are tuned in to Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Welcome, Brother Otis Griffin. Uh, you have a question or a comment? Yes, Max. Uh, hello, comrades. I I had a lot to say, but we're we're constrained for time, so I'm just going to make the point that uh, Miss Sharon actually hit on what I w- wanted to say. I'd like a link to the piece that you played for 30 minutes because actually that lady explained it pretty well. 
she yes. made it plain that the Constitution it is is embedded in white supremacy, and part of the reason that is is just what Sharon was saying. White was never clearly defined as a race because it's fluid. It was used strictly to exclude black right. or African people to create a bottom, and that's I think that's the term the lady actually used a bottom, free labor or suppressed labor that would could be used to further capitalism. Now, the, the other point I wanted to make is she also pushed out something that few people understood. Bacon's Rebellion is usually taught to you as something that happened over the course of two or three days, but she made it plain. That was a year-long campaign, which goes back to a point I tried to make earlier. Not only did they have the uprising that lasted, quote, for several days before Bacon died, it continued throughout the North Carolina-Virginia borders, and she also included something else. Those people, even though they were seeking their own freedom, they wanted more land. They knew it couldn't get it from the white landowners, so they were willing to attack the Indians. They wanted a breach in the peace treaties that had allowed the colonies to expand. So I want to make it clear that the other thing is she said, if you listen closely, race was never clearly defined because race wasn't really about people. It uh, or, or, quote, who is white? It was to exclude and solidify a solid uh, workforce, which would be Africans. The other part is when you look up tool, you'll find out why when you would, even when we were arguing, debating about the uh, NAA, the NCAA admitting that they wanted to use indentured servitude. What judges won't tell you is they fully understand that that constitution and how they execute the law is based on white supremacy. They won't put that in a pleading or any kind of conclusion, but it is understood it is for exclusion of African descent. Um, Max, just to let you know, we got another call on the board from area code 404, but uh, Max, you want to respond? Let's take 404 because I'm going to really streamline what I have to say after uh, for the next part. So let's go ahead and take 404 out of Atlanta. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. State your name, comment, or question. Um, I'm actually not commenting just yet, Max. This is Breeze. Um, oh, I just wanted to check in. All right, all right, no doubt. So uh, if you have a comment later, just press star star and uh, let us know you, you want to talk, all right? All right, well, uh, there we have it, and I appreciate all the comments. Like I said, this is something that we got to talk about for some time to come. I see it as the weaponization of whiteness and the way that it's so fluid, like uh, Brother Otis said, shows that it isn't, it isn't real. It's something that they can just bestow upon you in order to bring you into their group. And one thing is, you know, they're getting, their group is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as they absorb other uh, cultures and identities. So what I want to get into for the second part is really important. And I'll, I have to make an admission, and uh, just bear with me on this, but I'm wrong. And I have been wrong for a very long time. I should have known, and I didn't know. I call myself a researcher, and the most critical part of it, I, I missed for all of these years. And thanks to our family at, at uh, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak for pointing it out to me, I have to correct my language now. We don't want to amend the 13th Amendment, because no amendment has ever been amended. The only way that an amendment put into the Constitution, the federal Constitution, 
can be removed or altered is if you repeal it and replace it with a new amendment, the same exact way that happened for the first time in American history with the 18th Amendment, which was repealed and replaced with the 21st Amendment. And we've got to do the same thing. So basically, we're talking about creating the 28th Amendment, which would have the exact language that we want to have on it, where slavery is abolished with no caveat, slavery and indentures. I, I would say, no Max, caveat. just adopt what the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights says, where it addresses all forms of slavery, but adopting that language that the United States have is Article 4 of the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I, I propose that be the 28th Amendment, but go on, Max. Well, you know, there's a few things that I'm sure other people may want to propose, too, because now we're not just scratching something off. we really got to write something out. So it's going to take some of our minds to be able to get together to put this correctly. But I, I'm going to need, I'm going to do it myself, and I need everybody who has been following me and listening to what I say as advice and things like that to start changing your language as well. It's well, no longer and it is repeal. Our you, narrative is not different. We're st still the same end game. We're still trying to do the same thing to end slavery. The 13th Amendment is still the problem. The only thing that's different now is in semantics. So now, we have to repeal and not uh, amend. Now, we're only talking about the U.S. Constitution, the, the federal uh, constitution. Right. Each and every individual state has their own constitution and the laws are different. So again, if you live in Colorado, vote yes on Amendment A and remove the exception clause. The same wording um, that's in the 13th Amendment of the federal constitution, they will remove that, I'm going to believe, in November when they go to the polls. So check your state. So, you know, uh, that's death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, that could be the first domino to fall. So it's not just we have to not just focus on the federal government by simultaneously attacking this at the state level in the various using whatever apparatus is uh, or procedure is available to abolitionists in those individual states. So I'm definitely closely going to be watching uh, that domino to fall in Colorado. Um, so, but yes, uh, we want to repeal and replace. Now, when I propose the for, the uh, Article 4 from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I don't need to do any, any more research. I know I looked into that. Uh, indigenous people, uh, the best minds, the victims, um, they uh, are the ones who put together the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, shout out to Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, while she's known for her quote-unquote civil rights work, um, she did a lot of stuff on the international level. And I will also add, um, like what she was bringing up uh, in the lecture, um, the uh, doctor there she was bringing up, uh, what was her name again? Uh, I don't remember, Scott. Okay, well, it's, it's, it's posted in the archives. But as she mentioned... Uh, at the time of Bacon's Rebellion or before Bacon's Rebellion when they, when slavery and race-based slavery started to form in the colonies, there was no international law against these sort of things. And they broke from British common law. Well, there's international law right now that's been in place since 1948 uh, that's based on human rights. That's the direction Malcolm was going. That's the direction Martin Luther King was going. 
um, a lot, again, indigenous people from all over the world, lawyers, attorneys, um, uh, grassroots activists, uh, they came up with that. So, uh, you know, I would just ask people, read Article 4, and the United States, again, signed this declaration, meaning that they agree with the principles, and immediately after signing that, uh, the 13th Amendment should have been repealed and replaced with the 21st, uh, excuse me, with the, you say, Max, would be the 28th Amendment. Yes, that's basically what we're trying to do is create a whole new amendment. Like the 18th became the 21st, we're trying to turn the 13th into the 28th, or however many, because, you know, with the Convention of States around the corner, it could be three or four other amendments that might come before that, if we even get it on the table. But, you know, the 18th Amendment, uh, it was in effect for 13 years, and it was 13 horrible years. <laughs> and uh, it was the only amendment in American history that was repealed in its entirety. And as a matter of fact, it was also, from what I understand, through a convention of states. They say uh, uh, they also pointed out the Constitution in Article 5 allows for ratification by either method. But they went through a convention of states. What's coming up next is the Article 5 uh, convention of states, which is uh, the conventionofstates.org, which they're doing right now. So it's really not that difficult, and I'd like any feedback if somebody wants to you know, comment or chime in. Uh, again, I was wrong. I've been wrong all along, and I'm correcting myself, which is what I'm supposed to be doing. Not a lot of things are changing. It's just about the language and how we get it done. You know, Malcolm X quote, which I quoted from time to time on BTR News. See, everybody was saying, hey, Kanye don't know what he's talking about. He talking about abolish the 13th Amendment. And and he should know uh, what he's talking about before he opened his mouth. In fact, you know, some of them, uh, I think it was D.L. Hughley, told him to keep his mouth off slavery and, and what have you. So, you know, again, um, Malcolm said, don't be so quick to judge and condemn somebody because they don't think like you think or think as you think or think as fast as you think because at one time you didn't know what you know now. And so Max is right. For seven years uh, we've been saying amend. And technically, that's not wrong if we're talking about the states, because remember, Max, we went through all 50 state constitutions looking for the uh, slavery exception clause as punishment uh, for crime. So it still holds true on the state level, like what Colorado is getting ready to do in November. But the 13th, the federal, um, definitely, Max, I to answer your question, who knows, man? Who knows? Um, if we'll have a seat at that table to uh, put in at that constitutional convention that they're going to have. Um, the good thing is it's happening after the 2018 elections. So what that looks like, you know, could change after the elections. But either way, you know, we know it's going to be dominated by one or two parties and, and you know, it's going to be presence of both. So, Regardless of uh, whoever, we as abolitionists have to demand that this be put on the table, repealing the 13th Amendment, replace it with the 28th Amendment. And you know why it's so crucial, especially for new listeners? The Convention of States took 20 years to get where they're at now, and they're only about a state away, uh, maybe two, from going into an Article 5 Convention of States where they can open up the Constitution reinterpretation and also add new amendments if we were to do that outside of what this uh, moment presents us it would take us another 20 years maybe more than 20 years 
So are we just going to let that go by and not take it? We need this right now because if we don't get it right now, our children are going to be fighting the fight that we're doing right here today. All right, Scotty. Uh, I guess that covers it. Like I said, I'd like to open up the phone lines. If anybody has any comments or questions about that particular issue, uh, feel free to chime in. Again, I apologize. Uh, you know, I learned all of this on my own. There are no mentors who are alive trying to end slavery uh, that, that I was aware of until recently. And I, I've met several of them, which I am proud to say, like Lee Woods, for instance. But, uh, you know, we've been studying this week after week, day after day, uh, really without without a lot of professional input. Periodically, we've had our constitutional lawyers come on, our attorneys have come on, uh, politicians have come on, and they've all said an agreement. And none of them ever said, you know what, we can't do it like that. None of them ever said it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah but, which, you know, the human rights community, um, I don't know which exact organization it was that's supposed to be um, – reportedly working on having constitutional hearings, not, excuse me, congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment. Um, hopefully that will happen in November or shortly thereafter if they hit their target date. You know, that's the perfect opportunity to bring up, you know, repeal and replace. Absolutely, Scotty. Well, we're running short on time. Uh, you might want me to go ahead and do a speed run of the uh, news, general news? Yes, sir. Go right ahead. Okay, I've got a bunch of stuff, man. It's like this thing is increasing exponentially every day. Uh, there's an article came out from the Appeal.org called House of Cards, where they are literally selling uh, decks of cards to inmates with pictures of people who are wanted for potential uh, crimes, and and the the people in the prison buy the decks of cards. I think they're eight dollars a pack, with the hope that they might recognize one of the faces in the deck that they can snitch on and get paid for. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, also, the officer who fatally shot Tamir Rice uh, was hired as a cop again and then just as quickly uh, uh, took away his, uh, I guess, his application. He decided he didn't want to get hired there. But the whole idea that this guy who murdered a 12-year-old child in two seconds can go right back to being a cop is beyond being. Then, of course, another cop, the one who locked Darren Rainey in the scolding, uh, scalding shower until he burned to death in the shower. This guy has been going on all kinds of crazy escapades, having sex while on job and in uniform, uh, just crazy stuff. You can find all about it in our archives for New Abolitionist Radio at BTR Community. And then finally, there's another, re- well, not finally, but there's another report that came out where the, they were talking about the McDonald's workers' uniforms that are being made by prison inmates. We're talking about an international, for-profit, corporate entity that is using slave labor. The uh, inmates are getting paid 14 cents an hour to make these uniforms for people who are making $7.50 an hour. Amazing. And then uh, here's another one, Scotty, and I really want to you know go into depth on this, but I think I'll save it for next week. And that's where this Cleveland municipal judge, Michael Nelson, has contacted the Cleveland uh, newspaper Tuesday and said that a string of jail deaths disturbed him so much that he's no longer comfortable setting bonds for people charged with crimes unless they're charged with violent crimes. He said he will set personal bonds, meaning people who walk into his courtroom will be allowed to leave without posting bail. 
He said he's going to reach out to the court's administrative judge, Michael Early, and try to set up a meeting with jail officials to find out why so many inmates are dying. So this judge is like, yo, I'm sending people to their death, and I'm not sending any more people to their death. Unless they're here for violent crimes, I will not put them into a jail. Kudos to you, indeed. And again, Um, uh, this came up as a a subject of... uh, topic today uh, with another individual, but hey, they say voting don't matter. I say it absolutely does, as you know, I appreciated uh, what Mr. Jingles did here on the bench in Gaston County, Judge Jingles, uh, who passed away uh, about a year ago, but he's been on it, been working in Gaston County uh, Courthouse as a judge since um, um, the 1980s and what have you, man. And I didn't even know young black men who he's given a break that he could have sent into prison slavery for armed robbery at 16 years old. Um, but check, but sees, you know, you know, just based off of their record and their potential, uh, give them probation. You know, divert diverting them. Um, also, our guest last week, uh, the guy who, what, what was his name? Um, the, he's a bill bondsman. That was the subject of topic and how he I was. Ian Burroughs. Say that again. Ian Burroughs. Ian Bur- Burroughs. He was running what I, what I call a modern day underground railroad where he was talking about certain people. He won't even, you know, uh, require that they pay bill or try to work something out with them just to get them out of jail. Because as this judge says, you know, people are dying. So the sheriff matters. Who when you who you elect is sheriff. Um, you know, sheriff. Uh, what's his name or former sheriff David A. Clark? Man, how many people? Even little baby died in his jail because of the conditions and what have you. And so here you had his judge who's making this executive decision. And, um, you know, trying to practice justice uh, in this system. And so, yeah, voting matters. Indeed, Scotty. Hey, also, uh, I want to give a heads up. When we did our four-week series about the competing narratives during the prison strike 2018, I had some poets listening in to each segment. And I asked them to write poetry about what they heard and felt and saw. And uh, one of the poets have submitted their work in honor of Lee Wood, and it's called Abolish. And uh, I'm just going to read the first part to you, but what I'm hoping is I can get her to come in next week and read it aloud for us. It says, Abolish. I remember the first time I saw young boys and boys in chains shackled together at their feet and wrists, look of complete despair as they shuckled along, white cop in uniform, Look of conquest on his face, just another day on the job, transferring the captured. That's just part one. So I'm looking forward to, to, to reading the rest of this or having her read it for us next week. And we'll also have the other poets come in over the week so you can hear what they wrote. You know me, Scotty, I got to put poetry in everything. <laughs> you know how I am. I ain't got a problem be- with it. I, I don't have a problem with it at all, but I do have the writer of the Underground Railroad, 21st Century Underground Railroad, ready if you want to prepare the uh, abolitionist in profile. All right, Scotty, got you. Uh, go ahead and do the writer of the 21st, writers of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. All right, this com- this story comes to you by way of theadvocate.com. It was published October the 1st, uh, 2018, a wrongfully convicted by non-unanimous jury. This must be in Louisiana. I spent 15 years in prison for crime I didn't commit. 
Uh, it was the summer of 1992, a couple of weeks before the beginning of school. I was looking forward to my new baby being born and thinking about completing high school. I had aspirations to going to college or just getting a job to be able to support my baby to come. Detectives surrounding my grandma's house in Avondale saying they wanted to ask me questions regarding the murder. On August 18, 1992, my dad and I drove to the authorities to find out what was going on. After going from a person only being questioned, I was arrested and charged with first-degree murder along with my two cousins. My baby girl was born the very next day. A single eyewitness said we had killed the drug dealer. This long witness was an admitted crack user with a long and extensive criminal record. The jury consisted of nine white and three blacks. At one point at our trial, the jurors deadlocked at nine to three along racial lines. They requested to see the witnesses' original statements, but the judge denied the request. Had the jury seen the witnesses' original statement, it would have confirmed that he told the police he didn't know who had committed the murder. Eventually, one African-American juror went along with voting to convict us. Two other jurors held out. They were African-American. Those two jurors were right. We were actually innocent. I spent 15 years in prison for a crime I didn't commit with the assistance of Innocent Projects New Orleans. Told you it was Louisiana. I think one of the only states where uh, you don't need a, a unanimous, uh, you know, 12 to 0 to convict somebody. Um, man, so uh, that's kind of archaic. In any other state, we wouldn't have been wrongly convicted or sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, probation, or suspension of sentence. Louisiana is one of only two states that allow people to be convicted of felonies with nine unanimous jury votes. After the Civil War, when the 14th Amendment mandated that black men be allowed to serve on juries, Louisiana took action to maintain our second-class citizen slave status. In 1898, the state changed this constitution so that a less than unanimous vote by a jury could convict a defendant of a felony. The jurors could be outvoted by a majority of white jurors. See, voting matters, man. The official statements made at the 1898 Constitutional Convention stated that the intention was to, quote, perpetrate the supremacy, we just got through talking about all this, of the Anglo-Saxon race in Louisiana. Constitutions matter. They, they really do. The language that's in those constitutions. So on November the 6th, Louisiana will have a chance to overturn this expressly racist jury rule. A proposal on the ballot, again, voting matters, asks voters if they want to end the state split jury statute and the unfair practice of convicting people of a felony without the unanimous consent of a jury. Uh, man, how much further do I do I have to go? Um, let me get to the... Scotty, you could, you could actually just wrap it up right there because that was just one of the stories. It wasn't actually the rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, but he is a rider. The main reason I put that there is because of what you were talking about, voting, and people have an opportunity to change the laws in Louisiana right now. Word, word. All right, Scotty. Um, so, yeah, welcome to Freedom, brother. Oh, hey, oh, Max, Max, and, and uh, that story also points out what I just got through saying. Yes, we had to repeal and replace the federal constitution, the U.S. constitution, but in states like Louisiana, apparently you can change the constitution with a voter initiative. So that's Louisiana and Colorado. Colorado's moving to uh, remove the uh, prison at, uh, slavery aspect from their constitution um, Louisiana probably needs to do the same indeed Scotty 
All right. Well, our abolitionist in profile tonight in honor of his birthday is William Still. You know William Still. He was featured in, or at least a version of him was featured in the series Underground not too long ago. Uh, in any case, William Still was born in Burlington County, New Jersey in 1821 as the last of 18 children of former slaves Levin and Charity Still. By 1844, Still moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he spent the majority of his life and where he was appointed secretary of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Still was the first black man to join the society and the first to hold this position. Still was also active in the Underground Railroad in the two decades between his arrival of Philadelphia and the end of the Civil War. Still became well-known in various circles as a major conductor on the Underground Railroad helping fugitives make their way to Canada and freedom. Still also campaigned for an end to racial discrimination in Philadelphia. In 1859, he organized the effort to end black exclusion from Philadelphia streetcars. This campaign was described in Still's first publication, Struggle for the Civil Rights of the Colored People of Philadelphia in the City Railroad Cars in 1867. See, 1867, they were the colored people. In 1871, Still became the first anti-slavery activist to document the experiences of fugitive slaves in his book, the Underground Railroad, a work which explained the story often in the words of the participants in the effort to escape slavery. The book provided intimate details on the workings of conductors like himself, but it also provided numerous letters and testimonials from fugitive and slave people to still either requesting assistance or thanking him for his efforts. Even today, the Underground Railroad remains a major source for understanding this active and concealed resistance to slavery. William Still continued to campaign for civil rights in Philadelphia as a researcher, writer, and activist until his death in 1902. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio say salute and happy birthday, brother. Salute. All right, Scotty, we are down to our last five minutes, brother. Uh, anything you want to uh, put out there? Oh, yeah, I think the theme of the program tonight has been language matter, uh, history matters, laws matter, um, and I think the solutions are right there uh, in front of our faces, and it's not that, uh, and, and people have tried them before in the past and just weren't successful, just like uh, the abolitionists in Colorado weren't successful last year with Amendment T, but they're going to be successful uh, this year. So I, I think, you know, the root of the problem is slavery. Uh, racism and these classifications that they created is all to maintain slavery, but also to sow uh, division. So this is why, you know, I've said to you, Max, privately, and I've stated on BTR News that codification, when you're discussing stuff in public, when you're trying to get a bill passed, you're try trying to, you know, pass law or repeal and replace things, it's best not to use the language of the uh, people who uh, created these classifications. So like, for example, if I'm at a public rally or whatnot, and I'm talking about police brutality, and I'm talking about victims, I'm talking about American citizens. I'm using that language. I'm not going to racialize it to divide people. I'm not going to get into arguments with, with people about who's the biggest victim of this, that, or the other. 
Uh, that's the language of division. I'm trying to solve a problem. And the least divisive language is to refer to them as either residents of the United States or citizens of the United States or Americans, whatever label, you know, depend upon the language that we're speaking to in sense. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that, man. So I, I feel like it's a very constructive broadcast, Max, and it's all about that law, man, and language. Indeed, Scotty. I, I like to think of it as learning out loud. You know, I'm not a person with a dozen different degrees. I'm just another dude out there like yourself who'd want to know and want to find out and put my efforts into learning to find out. So, you know, that's where I'm at. And I appreciate all, all the people that partic participate in these conversations as we try to understand the issues that we deal with on a daily basis. I tend to think outside of the box, and I'm very much solution-oriented. If I had a nickel for every time I've made history doing something for the first time, I'd have at least a half pound of grade A endo. <laughs> but seriously, insanity is doing the same thing over and over while expecting new results. We're supposed to be trying new things, new ways, and new tactics. We're supposed to build on base knowledge, not sit on it. Don't be so unwilling to go out of comfort zones and establish norms that you become your own jailer. And most of all, don't forget that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Land of the free, it lies the home of the homeless. Too many die every day, only really just want this freedom. Freedom. Yeah. 